Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the questions that we've, we've addressed with previous guests over the, year, uh, over the years. We're looking at the future, uh, specifically the future of our surface fleet. When we look forward into the 2020s, 2030s and beyond, what do we need to do and what type of effort do we need to make to make sure that we have a fleet that's going to enable this nation to maintain access to all regions of the world's oceans that are vital to our national interests, both historically and developing. And our guest is just the ideal person today to talk about this and more. We have Brian Clark. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, CSBA. And as the basis of our conversation, we're going to have uh, as a touchstone a recent study that he has authored for CSBA titled Commanding the Seas, a Plan to Reinvigorate U.S. Navy Surface Warfare. You can find a link to that over at my home blog, or you can just Google it during the course of the show. It's a rather extensive read, but if you don't have time to read it all, just the introduction, I think, outlines very well some of the points that he brings up. Brian has a, a pretty extensive background. Prior to joining CSBA in 2013, he was Special Assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and Director of his Commander's Action Group. He served also in the Navy Headquarters Staff from 2004 to 2011, leading studies in the Assessment Division and participating in the 2006 and 2010 QDR. His areas of emphasis were modeling and simulation, strategic planning, and institutional reform and governance. Prior to retiring to the Navy in 2007, he was a listed officer and submariner, serving both afloat and ashore in a variety of tours, including chief engineer and operations officer at the Navy's nuclear power training unit. He has a Master's of Science in National Security Studies from the National War College and a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Philosophy from God's Country, otherwise known as the University of Idaho. Brian, welcome to MidRats. Well, thank you. Uh, go Vandals, by the way. Uh, thank you, uh, Sal and Eagle One, for having me on. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this subject, which I, I think is extremely important right now for the Navy uh, and for the country when you think about it more broadly. Uh, so uh, it's great to be able to get on and uh, talk about this with you and, and uh, you know, maybe hear what the listeners have to say as well. And I'll just give another plug uh, for the report, especially for uh, those that have a deep and abiding interest in the maritime corner of the national security arena and our surface, surface force. It is a great read when you want to look forward to some of the ideas and some of the potential uh, coming down there. But just kind of to set the environment here, if you could take a minute and uh, explain to our listeners exactly what is the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, what is your role there, and also what was the impetus behind the creation of your report, Commanding the Seas, a Plan to Reinvigorate U.S. Navy Service Warfare? Uh, well, Sal, so the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank uh, in Washington. Uh, we've been around for about 30 years. Uh, we got started uh, 
back uh, as the uh, defense program, uh, defense budget uh, and program office. I'm trying to think of the original name of the organization was different, but over time we've sort of adapted to become this uh, think tank that focuses both on strategy, budget, and then also the implications for capabilities. And so to distinguish what we do from what other think tanks might do, we tend to focus a lot more on military capabilities and uh, actual programmatics that might result from a new strategic approach to an area. So we'll go all the way from the top you know, strategy that the nation might pursue, pursue down through operational concepts that that might imply uh, and into the programmatic implications for, you know, where should we invest money? How should we maintain the force? What should we be thinking about uh, in terms of adversary capabilities? So we really do that kind of soup to nuts examination of different warfare areas. And that was one thing that really attracted me about CSBA. And so I've been there for about a year, uh, and I'd left the CNO's uh, Commander's Action Group in uh, November of last year. And uh, in the intervening year, I've done uh, a lot of wargaming for uh, OSD, and uh, I've worked on this study. I'm working on another study in undersea warfare. And my role there has really been to try to bring some of the uh, modeling and simulation experience I have from the Navy, and then also my own experience uh, as an operator and a planner back in the Navy headquarters to uh, add a little bit more current Navy flavor to the work that CSBA has been doing. And so this is my first report, uh, my first big report for CSBA. So what, what led me to think about doing this subject was um, when I was uh, working for the CNO, uh, one of the uh, challenging areas that we had was the, the surface force, because if you look at the surface force since the end of the Cold War, uh, it's become more and more defensively focused as adversary capabilities have become more and more threatening. And so the surface force has been uh, fo uh, focused on being able to defend the carrier battle group, be able to defend the carrier from uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-ship ballistic missiles, and, and uh, other threats. So uh, the surface force has been increasingly uh, in that mindset, largely because of the capabilities the adversaries have been able to bring to bear, uh, but then also sort of how our planning process has presumed the force is going to operate. And so when you assume that you've got the whole battle group out there or the whole joint force, um, you kind of, the, the assumption has been that the surface force has tended to be more of a defensive force. And we use the air wing, the submarines, the amphibs, uh, and then joint uh, forces like uh, bombers and, and things like that to do power projection, which, which sort of uh, was a division of labor, if you will, that emerged over time. Uh, but the um, the out the outshot of that is that the surface force is now in a situation where it's not really able to uh, defeat the uh, the platforms that might be able to bring those missiles to bear against our our battle groups and our uh, forces at sea. Uh, they're not able to uh, outrange uh, the anti-ship cruise missiles that enemies can bring to bear. So the surface force is now in this position where it can really only do defensive operations. It can't do offensive operations against adversaries, ships, aircraft, or submarines. Um, and uh, that situation is uh, somewhat untenable now as the threat continues to evolve and, and get worse. Uh, and the um, uh, the joint force is going to have to depend to an increase, increasing degree on surface ships for sea control. Uh, so what, that was kind of the situation that was gelling as, as I came over to CSBA. And then this year with the truncation of the LCS program, it sort of put the nail in the coffin, if you will, uh, of the family of surface ships that we in the Navy had envisioned having come into being here in the next decade. We had envisioned in the, around the turn of this century that we would have LCS, uh, the DDX or DDG-1000, and we'd have CGX, and that would form our family of surface ships. 
they would have an increasingly specialized nature, the DDX being somewhat focused on land attack, the CGX being very focused on missile defense, and the LCS doing a lot of the kind of sea control missions and the littorals that are in between those two. The um, you know, with the LCS being canceled or truncated, rather, you're now in a situation where that family of ships is really no longer going to come into being, and that concept of fighting or operating is no longer viable. So those those two trends of the surface force losing its offensive edge, and then also this whole vision of kind of falling apart of how we were going to uh, develop the surface fleet of the future puts the surface fleet at a crossroads. And that's why I thought, well, we should, let's, let's see what we can do with the surface fleet now, given this situation at this crossroad to give it the ability to get back on the offensive, uh, to be able to change this cost equation, if you will, because uh, right now the surface fleet is, is equipped and designed to shoot the arrows and not the archer. And I know the surface fleet leaders want to get back to the idea of shooting the archer. And that's what I'm talking about in this report is, is going back on offense uh, with offensive sea control. So that, that was the, the genesis uh, of the uh, report. And then what I talk about in the report is, is I, I wanted to focus on a set of actionable uh, kind of executable steps that the Navy could take in order to regain the offense, uh, given the fleet we have today uh, and given the, the constraints we're likely to be under and the continued demands for the surface force. Because if you look at the next uh, 10 years or so, we've got an opportunity before adversary capabilities really mature to the point where they might be very emboldened uh, to equip the surface force to be prepared for that situation. You know, So if between now and 2025 we can uh, give our surface fleet the ability to go on offense, uh, defeat adversary and, uh, aircraft, submarines, and uh, surface ships, and also strike targets ashore that are threatening the, the fleet, you know, then we'd be able to at least uh, weather the situation that will come after 2025, which is when we begin to build the SSBNX, it consumes a lot of the shipbuilding budget. Um, a lot of other uh, challenges are going to come into play with uh, you know, new threats emerging on the horizon. So it, it, trying to set up the surface fleet to be in a situation in 2025 where at least is able to go back on offense was the key aspect of this. And it had to be uh, executable because I'd seen in previous looks at the surface fleet that a lot of uh, aspirational designs for a future surface architecture that was kind of built out of whole cloth. And, and I knew that given the constraints we're under with the Budget Control Act and, and just the general uh, constraints on the old federal budget, it was unlikely the Navy's going to get a lot of money to build a new surface fleet from scratch. So we had to go with the fleet we had and uh, equip it in a way that uh, allowed it to go back on offense by 2025. Seems to me that there are two aspects to this. One is that, as you've just discussed, and I'm sure we'll discuss at length, there is the equipment. Which, uh, but the other side of it is a is an offensive mindset. Do we do we have? Uh, are we training our our officers, uh, future ship captains, to have that offensive mindset that's different than than uh, let's all gather around the carrier and keep it from from falling into harm. Uh, well, I no, not really. You know, we 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 are our doctrine, our training is really, and you know, no fault of anybody's because this has been the sort of concept that we've built the fleet around was. Uh, we're going to use the surface combatants to defend the carrier because that's our means of projecting power. Uh, but, and without any significant sea control threats, uh, the main thing that they had to defend against was cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, you know, from shore probably, and then maybe a few from sea. Uh, but now, um, yeah, that that 
uh, approach uh, is really not going to be viable. If you do the math, you realize that you know any reasonable enemy is going to be able to bring a lot more missiles, for example, to bear than we're going to be able to defend against, given our current you know concept and TTPs for how we do air defense alone. And if we can't reach out and hit the thing that's shooting at me and I can only shoot the missiles that they're launching at me, I'm going to run out of ways to defend myself relatively quickly. The, um, one of the things you mentioned early on, and I, I find it, it under-discussed because it's uncomfortable, but you kind of touched on it, so you opened the doors, I'm going to stick my foot in it and pry it open a little bit. But you outline really well, both here and also in the paper, you know, back at right after the turn of the century, uh, there was a plan developed to build really an exquisitely designed system of ships centered on that concept of network-centric warfare where we were going to have CGX, DDX, and LCS. And here we are, you know, 13, 14 years on, we have a canceled cruiser, a destroyer that's basically been truncated into a three-ship technology demonstration project, uh, LCS. We all know what's happened to that. And as we look forward to what is coming next with a lot of the, the systems and possible ships you have designed, that failure of the network-centric fleet concept from 13, 14 years ago, was that the result of, do you think, of a, a really a unrealistic and unexecutable concept, or was the problem in the execution after the initiation of the concept, or maybe a combination of the two, but even more importantly, what do you see as the top lessons learned from that that failure of, of ships and systems that we should keep in mind to make sure that we don't repeat it as we go forward and try to build the fleet for 2020 and beyond. Right. Yeah, I think um, it was. It not only was it. Um, yeah, I would say it goes beyond being a combination of the two, but it was both of those things independently, and either one of them could have caused to fail. So what I'm saying is, the idea of net-centric warfare it was um, a good aspiration, and someday in the future we may be able to achieve it. But the idea that we would be able to seamlessly tie together all of our platforms in such a way that they could each specialize to a great degree in their own missions and then uh, knit them together in a way that allowed them to mutually support one another, which is essentially what we were hoping to do by having three very specialized ships operating together uh, in this concept. I think that that concept just isn't viable given the kinds of anti-access capabilities that are out there and the, the ability of an adversary to degrade our communication links. Now, you know, they're not going to turn off the entire radio uh, spectrum, EM spectrum. Uh, they're not going to be able to turn off the entire space capability that we might bring to bear. But it's going to be degraded enough to where the idea of having these very specialized warships seamlessly mesh together and then uh, you know, sort of uh, have an integrated fire control concept among them, it just wasn't going to be viable. And we're seeing today with the challenges, you know, NIFCA is a Navy integrated fire control counter air is an example of that kind of integrated fire control network. And uh, it's going to work, but it's really hard. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of uh, uh you know, kind of doctrinal and TTP refinement over time. And even then, it's going to only give you a measure of uh, integrated fire control. So you can see, looking at the NIFCA example, how difficult it was going to be to achieve the level of integration that net centricity was, was expecting to deliver. So that was a failed idea, I think, 
in that way and that it wasn't viable to get to that level of integration on its own. And then separate from that, I think we, uh, the execution of the, the family of ships uh, was poor. <laughs> and we can you know, talk about many ways of that, that being the case. But I think the predominant way it was poor was that we tried to uh, introduce too many transformational technologies into a too few number of ships. And you can tell by looking at each one of those classes, how we really tried to jam a lot of new ideas into each of them, and uh, to some degree didn't really settle on what their real mission was going to be as we executed them. And so CGX uh, you know, was going to be way too expensive to enable it to be a um, affordable ship that we could buy in the numbers that we needed. Uh, the DDX, we all saw what that happened as we turned that into DDG1000, and you know it's going to be a great ship, but it was very expensive, and the, the technology development necessary for it was extensive. And then LCS, we saw what happened there with you know the, pro the problems we had with regard to defining the mission, you know, figuring out how we were going to achieve it, how are we going to balance the inherent capabilities versus those that are brought in by the mission packages. So the execution was also a problem. So in both ways, did we set ourselves up for failure. Um, and what drove that in part was this, the idea of transformation that was pervading the DOD at that point. So in the 2000-2001 timeframe, you know, DOD, OSD wanted everything to have a transformational aspect to it. And so the Navy followed suit by introducing the idea of, well, these are transformational ships. They're using this brand new concept of operations. They're going to incorporate all these new technologies. And we simply set ourselves up for a plan that was not going to be executable, uh, especially in an environment where, you know, while we had a lot of money, that money was being increasingly siphoned off to go to fight wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So uh, the resources weren't going to be there to deliver on a concept that was very aspirational. Yeah, I thought one of the interesting aspects of your article was you really did deal with the fleet more or less as we have it. Although you know you you project a uh, an up armed LCS, um, right. which I guess I guess is on the books. But but um, you hit on a couple of things that were really important. One is what I used to call the Red Storm Rising scenario. I don't know if you read the book that Clancy Funny. wrote, but you know it was, it was the surface warfare officer nightmare where you shoot all your you go Winchester shooting all your uh, uh, Missiles at uh, at incomings, and then find out that's just the first wave. So you know, you've just, you've discussed that in the book. You've got, I mean, in your article, you've got, uh, you know, we've got to to more heavily uh, arm the ships we have. How, and given the vertical launch system uh, configurations, how do we do that? How do we how do we make those ships carry more and do more? Uh, right. Well, so let yeah, I'll talk. Let me talk about that. So to get into the meat of the uh, of the uh, paper, kind of the, the the overall idea is to get back on offense. And so, looking at where we are today, uh, I determined well, the first thing we got to do is free up some VLS space for offensive weapons. Because if you go out today, uh, obviously ships carry a mixture of weapons. So some of them are offensive, like a TLAM, and a lot of them are defensive, like SM2s. But if you get into a wartime scenario, that weapons loadout is going to change to be predominantly air defense weapons because of the air threat and the fact that we've got a limited and finite number of VLS uh, cells available on the ship. Uh, and looking at the numbers, uh, what I determined was the only way you're going to free up VLS space for an offensive weapon is by changing your air defense concept so that your air defense concept enables you to use smaller weapons that take up less, less space on the ship and allow you to carry more of them. That'll both make your air defense umbrella denser so that you get better air defense, uh, but then, or at least more air defense capacity, <laughs> and then also frees up space in the VLS magazine so that I could put some offensive mis uh, missiles in there that reach a longer range that were able to hit the enemy before he's able to shoot me. 
So to do that, um, you know, just running through the, the numbers, uh, and Dr. John Stillian, who's my colleague at CSBA, who's a OR genius, uh, who came to us from RAND, uh, is very good at this. But we went through and looked at uh, well, okay, what are the ways you would be able to actually create more space in the magazine? Well, it, to make a smaller missile, you're pretty much looking at a missile that's going to have shorter range. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to give up on um, kinematics, and you don't necessarily have to give up on seeker technology. And what we found was that if you look at a missile like the ESSM, the Evolved Sea Sparrow missile, the Block II of that's going to come out at the end of this decade just as part of the normal progression of things. But that weapon's a pretty effective weapon, and if you go to European navies, a lot of them use that as their primary air defense missile. It goes out to 30 miles. It's got, in 2020, the Block II will have a fully active multi-mode seeker. Um, so it's it's a very good weapon that doesn't require radar resources to guide it, for example. Uh, and it's small enough to where you can carry it four per VLS cell. And I saw that as a way to get more air defense capacity on the ship so that you can uh, improve your ability to deal with the salvos that are going to be coming your way, but then also maybe free up some space so that you can turn some of those VLS magazines over to offense. But what that means is you're going to have to shift your air defense scheme to be this from this layered defense we have today to being more of a single layer at 30 miles where the ESSM or a like missile operates, uh, and then your self-defense layer at five miles or so. And how that, so when you look at the math, um, that's only, it seems inevitable that we're going to have to go to that because in our current scheme of layered air defense, I'm going to use an SM as an incoming threat arrives on my screen. If I have over the horizon targeting for it, um, because I've got an E2 or somebody flying around looking at it, uh, I'm going to try and shoot it with an SM6 at 100 miles or more away. Well, that's a $4 million missile I'm shooting, uh, and I'll shoot two of them because I'm going to try and do shoot, shoot, look, shoot probably. And so two $4 million missiles just went downrange to shoot a cruise missile. And if it's a Brahmos or something like that, which is a good cruise missile, that's a $2.5 million cruise missile. So the cost exchange alone is ridiculous. And then on top of that, I'm using you know, my limited VLS magazine now is being expended very quickly uh, because I'm shooting these things with the largest missiles, most expensive ones I have first, uh, preferentially. Well, I'm going to use up all my SM6s, and then the next wave that comes, I'm going to use my SM2s, and then the next wave that comes, I'm down to now using my ESSMs and my uh, point defense systems. So I've set myself up to use my most expensive, largest missiles first, uh, and then I'm down to point defenses very quickly. And if for an adversary, $2.5 million a cruise missile, I may not be able to shoot very large salvos at you, but I'll shoot a lot of salvos at you to take out a you know, $1.5 billion destroyer because that cost exchange for me as the adversary is really good. And these cruise missiles are getting you know, very, very common, very easy to build. You can build a lot of them, and especially if you're a country like Iran. You can use geography to your advantage because I can use a much shorter range cruise missile because you're stuck in some geographically constrained water. So I can dump a lot on you, and they're really cheap uh, probably at that point because they're relatively short range. So every way you did the math, it, it worked out that you had to create more air defense capacities on the ship, and the best way to do that was to go to a shorter-range air defense scheme. The additional benefits of that short-range air defense scheme were, uh, one, it makes me less dependent on over-the-horizon targeting now. Uh, so I can, if I'm looking at a 30-mile window uh, to shoot incoming weapons, uh, I could put my helo up at 800 feet, and maybe he gets a detection on them because he has a horizon of uh, 30 miles at that point. 
uh, or if the missiles are above 800 feet themselves as they're coming in, I can hit them because I can see them over the horizon. Uh, or I could use over-the-horizon targeting uh, from you know some network that might be available if I happen to be with the battle group. Uh, but what that also means is um, I can uh, use my uh, electronic warfare systems now because they operate line of sight. So I can't, you know, I'm not using my electronic warfare system at 100 miles to replace the SM6, but I could use it at, t you know, 10 to 30 miles to uh, act in place of more ESSMs or some other missile. So that's a way to bring air electronic warfare into my air defense scheme as something more than just the backstop at the you know last minute, the you know, Hail Mary to prevent the actual strike on the ship. I could use it to actually prevent me from having to use more kinetic weapons. And then also, if you look in the, into the future, uh, lasers and railgun are something that we talk a lot about as being uh, future systems that the Navy needs to use for air defense because they will not require VLS spaces to be used for them. Well, those systems are going to run at small, at shorter ranges. And so we have an air defense scheme that's still in this layered approach. I'm going to continue to shoot 100-mile missiles at uh, targets as they come in instead of waiting to use my railgun and laser because the railgun and laser are going to operate between 10 and 30 miles depending on you know, what the target is and how much power they have. So, it, so in, in a lot of ways, this 30-mile this uh, zone makes a lot more sense for the Navy, especially looking forward into the future, than the air defense scheme that we have today, which was based on a Cold War threat of small numbers of cruise missiles coming in uh, in relatively small salvos. So that, that was the first thing, is you got to free up the VLS space uh, for your uh, offensive weapons. And then the next thing I talked about in the report was, okay, how do I get offensive weapons that are going to make a difference? So and that's a, as a perfect setup for the question I was going to ask you to, to tie together you know, two of those things, uh, and you, you do address quite well in the report, and that is the critical nature of that very valuable real estate, i.e. your VLS cell, especially when right. you're in a multi-threat environment. If all you do is focus on your air threat and you want to have something besides a, a torpedo you throw over to side or have to deliver via a helo, you quickly run out of VLS to reach out and touch somebody. And the, the, if you're not using aviation, the way you reach out and touch somebody is a, a very effective but a, a very dated uh, subsonic platform in the TLAM. So, right. And that whole offensive mindset is kind of surprisingly been, been put on a back burner in many respects. But you do have some ideas about uh, if you're going to go forward, you're going forward because you're trying to project power. To project power, you have to be able to reach out, uh, hopefully, and kill the archer as opposed to trying to knock his arrows out of the air all the time, but also to be able to, to do other things ashore as well. What are some of those offensive weapons in the 20s and the 30s that hold the best possibility for us if we're not just going to sit there and defend ourselves? Right, yeah. So the, the, um, when you run the numbers for air defense, you see that um, even with all the even with the changes I'm proposing with, to the air defense concept, you're, you could still be overcome. You know, the the enemy could still shoot enough missiles at you; they would eventually use up your air defense interceptors and, and force you to use either non kinetics or, or uh, be stuck. So the, the, you still have to um, come up with a way to shoot the archer because you got to eventually stop him from shooting arrows at you. And what I looked at there was um, yeah, there's you know the submarine threat, the aircraft threat, the surface ship threat, and then the shore threat. You know to, that's going to be launching. 
cruise missiles at you. And you're right. So the Tomahawk that we have today um, is a long-range weapon. It's very capable. Uh, it's got this uh, reprogrammable capability with the Block 4. So that's that's very um, effective for a lot of types of missions, but it's it's somewhat vulnerable. And so you shoot those, you gotta you have to shoot a number of them to ensure that you actually get some through because the adversary is going to defend anything that you're trying to strike. If it's worth worth you striking, it's probably him, worth him defending it. So getting a, a, a new cruise missile or a new uh, attack missile that's uh, more survivable uh, would be really important. And the Navy's got this next generation land attack weapon program that it's pursuing. Uh, so I could, I'll talk in a second about that. Then the next thing is, with, with regard to the surface ship threat, the Navy's got the long-range anti-ship missile program, which it's pursuing. The, the increment one of that right now is going on aircraft, and that's primarily an Air Force-led effort, uh, and then it'll be integrated on Navy aircraft as well. Uh, that's going to be based right now on the JASM-ER. And the JASM-ER is a air-launched missile with a range of a few hundred miles, uh, but it has a, almost a 1,000-pound warhead on it, uh, which is a pretty big warhead. And if you think about um, you know, the kinds of threats you're going to be going after in the future, uh, there may be an opportunity there to extend its range and, and accept a smaller warhead. And then if you look at the um, you know, dealing with the, the subsurface threat, submarine threat, we have ASROC and vertical launched ASROC, which has a range of about 12 miles, which doesn't do you much good when the adversary has a cruise missile that the submarine could launch that could be uh, 10 times that range. And so what I recommended in the study is that the Navy pursue three priorities when it comes to developing the new generation of weapons that's currently in the pipeline. You know, and again, I'm not looking to you know, rebuild all of the uh, surface fleet architecture, but I am looking to modify what's already being developed to ensure it has the right attributes for the future. And those attributes are that it has relevant capability, and that's primarily the range issue. You know, our, 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 our missiles in general are too short a range to be able to outrange the missiles that the enemy is going to be able to shoot at us. Uh, the next thing would be multi-mission capability, and having missiles or weapons in our VLS cells that have the ability to do more than one type of mission, because uh, that's finite real estate state. It's my main battery, and I can't return to port to go change out my missile load up just because my mission changed from being predominantly uh, surface warfare, for example, to being predominantly strike. And the last priority was uh, small size, reducing the size of weapons, because I want to try to get more weapons into the VLS magazine if possible. So when you look at the weapons that are coming down the pike right now that are in development, uh, those attributes could be applied to them. So, for example, this uh, LRASM version, the Increment 2, that will go on ships, whatever that ends up being. Uh, if you look at the JASM as the basis for the current missile, uh, the current LRASM, you could say, well, you could shrink the warhead on that um, and try to uh, increase the amount of fuel or make the weapon lighter so you can get more range out of it. What that might do is allow you to use it for both anti-ship attack and then land attack because the, the, the biggest shortfall with regard to land attack in a, using this anti-ship missile for that mission is it doesn't have as much range as the Tomahawk. But you could extend the range of that LRASM quite a bit probably by changing the warhead to be a smaller warhead. And if you think about the kinds of threats we're going to be going up against, the, the things that are sea control threats are going to be ships um, and shore stations, and usually it's going to be some relatively sophisticated radar and uh, launcher system that a smaller warhead is still going to be able to take out a service, regardless of whether it obliterates the thing from the face of the earth or not. So smaller warheads are a way we could go to uh, allow us to get more multi-mission capability out of a weapon and make it smaller, possibly. 
Uh, if you look at this next generation land attack weapon, we could, instead of pursuing that separate land attack weapon, you know, make it this combined land attack anti-ship weapon with the LRASM to allow each VLS cell that contains one of those to be able to shift from one mission to another and I don't lose that real estate uh, if my mission changes from strike to surface warfare. Uh, you could do a similar thing with some of our anti-air weapons. You know, the SM-2 today has an anti-surface mode. The SM-1 we used in the tanker war uh, to some effect. Uh, going up against, again, sophisticated ships, um, smaller weapons like the SM-2 or the SM-6 could be effective at that kind of anti-surface uh, anti application uh, if we you know, modified them to enable them to do that. Uh, and that gives you the ability to then take that real estate that would have otherwise be you know, just for air defense and then use it also for um, anti-ship weapons. And then the um, last thing would be the VLA. So we def desperately need in the Navy a new anti-submarine rocket that is able to reach the kinds of range that the adversaries' anti-ship missiles can reach us at. So we're talking 100, 150 miles away because uh, otherwise we're going to be well within his uh, attack zone uh, when we start to get the ability to engage. And I know that our, right now people would say, well, uh, we're going to rely on the helicopter you know, that the surface ship deploys to go drop a torpedo on that guy before he gets within range to shoot us. And that's fine if the you know if the if the torpedo if the if the uh, if you detect him uh, on your uh, multifunction total array you could send the helo out there and you can drop a torpedo on him. Uh, the the challenges with that are one he may not be in position to enable you to quickly do that and so that guy could shoot you before the helicopter gets there. Uh, two the helicopter may be otherwise busy uh, or may not have any weapons on board in which case you're going to give that guy who's uh, the submarine out there the opportunity to shoot you for a while while you get your act together. Uh, whereas if you had an ASROC with a range of 100 miles, you could shoot that at the guy. Uh, and even if it's not effective at you know, killing him, it's going to force him to react and evade, break off his engagement. He'll probably lose contact with you, and he'll lose the initiative. You know, so that's kind of the key with anti-submarine warfare is the submarine, once he's lost his stealth, uh, is going to have to regain that before he can you know, re return to the operation at hand. So you could take advantage of that uh, by developing an anti-submarine weapon that you know, uses long range to get him before he can get us, but doesn't rely on a you know, sophisticated scheme to somehow uh, kill the submarine. So that's where I thought we needed to go with weapons. Yeah, I, I thought you raised a couple of other interesting issues. One was the, the inability to reload the VLS at sea, uh, which needs to be addressed, I gather, in your thought. And the other one, the repurposing of uh, the DDGs, which are now uh, designated for ballistic missile defense units. I mean, as far as I could see, we could just put ballistic missile stuff on uh, and an Aegis kind of thing on a barge and park it someplace instead of using up valuable uh, DDGs. But uh, can you kind of talk about those two topics? Yeah, so once kind of the way I saw it in the, in the study was once once we looked at uh, each individual ship, so I've, I've got a new air defense scheme that frees up VLS space on each ship, and now I've got new weapons that are able to make the most out of each of those VLS cells for offense. Then I have to figure out how do I make the most uh, ships available to actually go on offense. Because uh, one thing you'd find today is that I could do all those changes with air defense and weapons, and then still I end up having uh, DDGs sitting offshore in a BMD box, but doing a patrol, unable to do offensive operations because they can't maneuver more than 10 miles away from their tether point. 
uh, or um, I end up with uh, cruisers and destroyers that could be used for offense stuck doing uh, security cooperation missions or doing escort missions in wartime because I don't have enough small surface combatants. So I'll get to that in a second. But the, the first thing was if I want to make more ships available for offense once I've addressed each of their indivi individual capacities, the what, first thing I do is look at using Aegis Ashore instead of these ships at sea uh, for ballistic missile defense missions. Uh, today, the Navy has about 18 destroyers and cruisers that are tied up supporting ballistic missile defense states either uh, the guys that are rotating from Norfolk to go out to the Middle East and do this, uh, the guys that are in uh, Rota that are going to be doing this in the Eastern Med and are already doing it there, or the guys in Japan that are deploying out to the, uh, uh, the East China Sea or the uh, Sea of Japan, depending on where they are, uh, to do, do those ballistic missile defense missions. And, and those 18 ships are completely lost to the surface fleet when it comes to offensive operations. So those those could be returned if we start shifting to Aegis Ashore, which uh, you could buy uh, two, maybe three, depending on the cost of the ship, Aegis Ashore units for the cost of one DDG. Uh, it may be worth the Navy biting the bullet and buying a few of those Aegis Ashore stations and installing those in, in friendly countries with which you know we think we have a stable relationship. Uh, so that we don't have to have these ships being consumed in this mission, which uh, it, you think about it in wartime, there, that mission may even grow. So not only do I have 18, I probably got more of them tied up in that mission in a wartime environment, which is the exact situation in which I need my surface combatants to be available to go on offense. Uh, the next thing I looked at when it comes to making more ships available for offense was this cruiser phase modernization that the Navy has proposed, uh, which would, uh, over the next 10 years or so, take cruisers offline, uh, and uh, put them into a reduced operating status and demand them to some degree, and then over time do a phased modernization on them and bring them back into service. Uh, that would save the Navy some money in the near term, but that would also have the effect of extending the lives of those cruisers and, and, let, and allowing them to remain in service out into the 2040s, which would give you more large surface combatant capacity uh, for offense because you've got 122 VLS cells on each of those cruisers. Uh, they would also be able to do the Area Air Defense Command or mission, which is sort unique to them right now. And then it would also help you address the fact that during the 2030s, you're going to have a tough time buying any additional service combatants because the Ohio replacement program will be consuming about 40% of the shipbuilding budget if historical trends in spending were to hold true. So that, that was the second thing in terms of making more ships available to go on offense. Uh, and then the other aspect of making ship, more ships available to go on offense had to do with uh, addressing the fact that today, if we were to go into a conflict or some you know, ramp up, there were heightened tensions in a place like the Middle East, I would have to use cruisers and destroyers to do escort missions for convoys or tankers or, or our own CLF ships, our own combat logistics force ships, uh, because my LCS and um, my rest of my small surface combatants can't do air defense for a ship that's in company with them. Their air defense system, which is the rolling airframe missile, doesn't have the range. It's a good system, but it just doesn't have the range to allow you to defend another ship that you're driving around with. Uh, so we, it's, it's absolutely essential that we equip this next small surface combatant with an air defense capability that enables it to defend another ship, and that we also go back and backfit onto selected LCS that same capability, because otherwise we're going to lose a bunch of uh, cruisers and destroyers to that mission uh, as soon as we get into a heightened tension scenario. And I need those ships able to go off and do offensive missions instead of that defensive convoy escort mission.
Uh, and then um, the, the last thing that goes with that is if you were to equip LCS and this new small for surface combatant in that manner, it's probably going to have to be a VLS magazine because to defend another ship, you need a missile the size of or an interceptor the size of like an ESSM. Uh, so to get that, I need essentially a VLS magazine. And if I put a VLS magazine on the LCS as part of this new small surface combatant, um, or I put it onto an existing LCS as part of a backfit, I can also then put offensive missiles in that ship. And you know, I, I talk in the report about a concept for offensive uh, surface action groups using small surface combatants by themselves or maybe in company with a large surface combatant uh, to go off and do offensive operations uh, to augment the offensive capacity of the surface fleet. Eagle One? See, I thought that was my question, but you can go. I'll go ahead. Um, <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about those small service combatants a little bit. I mean, I, I feel like we're back to talking about things Wayne Hughes and uh, Admiral Sobrowski used to talk about. You know, are these, are these, uh, um, and, and maybe, uh, maybe even uh, Jerry Hendricks are, are, are is that? Uh, an important aspect of, of where you see things going? Do we need some of these small, uh, fast, uh, heavily armed uh, ships out there? Well, so um, again, going back to the kind of the philosophy of the study was to ensure that uh, the actions I recommend are executable uh, within the physical constraints and the uh, uh, the likely uh, operating environment between now and 2025. So the idea of buying a bunch of a new class of ship or a bunch of additional ships uh, is probably not feasible. I mean, people talk about that idea, but even a, even a cheap ship, as we've seen, <laughs> is uh, more expensive than you think. And then the more, more important concern is if I build a you know, flotilla of really cheap, small service combatants that are heavily armed, well, there's a big manning cost associated with that that is considerable and that we need to consider going forward because uh, – uh, if manpower is our most expensive uh, asset, as the CNO and others have noted, well, then I need to look at ways to reduce my manning instead of increasing my manning. But what I do recommend in the study is uh, the Navy is going to come up with this new small surface combatant you know, that, that Secretary Hagel directed them to do. Uh, if you uh, Right now, at the end of this fiscal year, the Navy is only going to have 26 small surface combatants, which is half the number that it says it needs. Uh, you're going to see an increasing uh, push of <laughs> cruisers and destroyers into small surface combatant missions because the demand's not going away, but the supply has certainly gone down. Uh, so the uh, you're, to keep that small surface combatant capacity up and to uh, not lose the 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 learning curve that you, if you will, that we've gotten with uh, LCS, I recommend that this new small surface combatant be a modified LCS so that we're able to go into FY19, which is the first year it's supposed to be bought, according to the shipbuilding plan, and uh, you know, immediately uh, procure that in the same manner that we were going to procure the LCS, which is a, uh, I think, two and 19, and then three all the subsequent years until you get to 20 ships. But the only way you get there is by making it a modified LCS. And, I, and right now, uh, I thought that the idea would be that we could take those ships and then if we backfit some LCSs with some of the offensive capabilities, we'd be able to then uh, test out some concepts where they could operate in offensive surface action groups. Uh, so I'm not saying buy additional ships for that purpose, but I'm saying take some of our planned ships, use them in that manner, and then we might learn some things that might indicate, okay, on a follow-on class, uh, maybe I should invest in a smaller uh, 
similarly capable surface combatant, you know, like these fast missile craft or uh, people have talked about the Visby and another other number of other small ships that have offensive capabilities and an adequate air defense to protect themselves during those offensive operations. But the first step, I think, for the Navy would be to take some of these LCS and small surface combatants and equip them in a manner that allows them to do those concepts. Let's test them out and, and practice with them and get that offensive mindset back in the fleet. And then we can think about uh, building a follow-on to that, even a small surface combatant. Now, once we start getting to the 2030s now, that, that's able to leverage those concepts. I want to keep working on that topic because, you know, I think in some ways we've created a self-fulfilling prophecy with the fact there is a large lead time in developing new classes of ships, and we could do a whole other show on there's a, if you go with a modified LCS, you're you're doubling down on some inherent original sin issues with that ship. A couple things uh, I wanted to 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 have you talk about. One thing you bring up in the paper is uh, another use for the joint high speed vessel one and two. Besides uh, ego, what is getting in the way of us uh, license building some very successful sub Arleigh Burke sized ships such that the very small nations from the, the Danes to the Norwegians to the Dutch that they've developed and have deployed in the last few years as our next small surface combatant as opposed to just trying to make the best hash that you can out of the LCS program. So two things. Uh, talk about uh, your concept of joint high-speed vessel. And besides the ego issue, what's wrong with license building some successful platforms that are already out there? Right. Yeah, so on the joint high-speed vessel, uh, what I was going to there was because we've got this enormous shortfall in small surface combatants, we are inevitably going to start using cruisers and destroyers for more of those missions. We already are using them for some of those missions because of the shortfall. For example, Cowpens went out on this deployment last year, had a lot of issues, CO got fired. And uh, But if you look at the deployment they were on, it was primarily a security cooperation deployment, and we would have done that with a small surface combatant had we had them available to go do that, more than likely. So the shortfall is making a big difference. These ships are getting used up faster. It's preventing surf large surface combatants from getting the maintenance they need because they're not in port anytime. The operating tempo is too hard for those guys. They could, they could certainly use with the opportunity to get back into port and train and maintain their ships. Uh, so the, it, we need to come up with another way to do those small surface combatant missions that don't require us to use large surface combatants in their stead. And what I looked at was, well, if we, if we were to separate the uh, LCS mission module, mission pr packages from the LCS program and look at separating those, L making the LCS mission packages standalone mission packages and then expanding that concept to a number of other missions, you would be able to then take those onto other ships and use those uh, non-combatant ships like the, LC like the JHSV to go out and do small surface combatant missions. So for example, uh, we found in the mine countermeasure, countermeasure exercises the last few years in the Arabian Gulf, a lot of the mine countermeasure capabilities that we're developing for LCS are so modular, in fact, that they could be deployed from any number of platforms. And we were deploying them from RIBS, from the Ponce, from the, um, the uh, Royal Navy's uh, support ship, uh, Cardigan Bay, I believe, and then other, sh other ships as well from the other nations that were attending the exercise. 
so that that led me to you know, this idea that well perhaps these mission modules can be made in a, in a way that are adapted in a way that would allow them to be put onto any number of ships and the JHSV is a perfect example of a ship that we could deploy to do some of these uh, less stressing missions in a, in a lower threat environment obviously but uh, you know, for with a $150 million hull instead of a you know, $1.5 billion hull if it ends up being a destroyer that we would use. Uh, so I even recommended then that the Navy look at the JH, buying more JHSVs to support those missions because it's likely we're going to have this shortfall, if you look at the shipbuilding plan, in small surface combatants for some time to come. You know, until the 2020s, we're going to have this shortfall. So if we bought a few more JHSVs, we would certainly put them to good use. And if we made the mission packages able to go on those ships, it would be a way to extend that capability uh, in a way that's pretty affordable. Now, when it comes to the... Um, the new small surface combatant, or this idea of, of leasing uh, foreign ships, I, there's there's certainly, uh, or not leasing, but you know, doing a, a licensing agreement to build them. I think there's uh, a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, I guess utility in that idea. I visited a couple of foreign shipbuilders as part of this uh, study, so I've talked with Navantia over in uh, Spain and with uh, Fincantieri over in Italy, and um, the their their ships are, are pretty big. You know, when it comes to small surface combat, so they're in the four to five, depending if the Frem frigate is, you know, in the 5,000 ton range. So it's a pretty big ship for a small surface combatant. Uh, but if you could uh, build those as is with no modifications, you could certainly build them per, for a pretty affordable price. A couple things that the shipbuilders mentioned to me, which I didn't really realize till I went and talked to them, was that uh, they find that when they uh, try to adapt their ships to U.S. Uh, designs into U.S. usage, uh, what they find sometimes is that the op-tempo, just the operating uh, profile of U.S. warships is so much more stressing that a lot of their subsystems don't hold up the way that they thought they would, because uh, the European navies tend to use their ships in a, way, in a different way than, than the United States does, so that they're, they may not be built as robustly as they would need to be if they were to be used in a U.S fleet application. So that was one thing that was interesting that I didn't really realize until I had that discussion with them. Uh, also, of course, I think it might be unrealistic to think we're going to be able to bring one of these designs in and be able to get it through and just license it without any modification because we'll get into the whole um, discussion regarding you know, survivability and what are the subsystems and what's made in the USA and what's not made in the USA because a lot of these foreign ships use foreign suppliers for their subsystems. Uh, I think that might be all worth working through, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'm thinking of that was one area that I didn't get into in the study. I wasn't able to really address it in the report because it was starting to get really long. But uh, I think this idea of uh, looking at why does it take so long to build the design and build a first ship of class, and then why is it that we can't adapt foreign designs more readily? Why is it they end up being uh, in the bastardized in the course of their transition from the foreign design to the domestic design? I think that's a great area for us to start pulling the string on because uh, all the reasons really have to do with you know, uh, legislation and bureaucracy and not invented here and, and a lot of things that we could work through. There's no reason why we couldn't work through these issues and come up with a way to adapt a, a, an effective foreign design for U.S. use. And that, I think that's something we should look at when we, the Navy starts thinking about what are they going to build after this next small surface combatant. Uh, but I think if we tried to do that now, you're going to get right back into that hornet's nest of it taking 10 years to get from concept to first hull in the water, um, which I don't think we have time to do with regard to the new small surface combatant.
You know, uh, when I was reading your paper, I, I kept thinking of the the, the uh, first Sea Lords thing about sea blindness, and, right. and wondering is your is your paper a a warning bell, a gong to tell people, hey, look, you know, we are being outranged. Our mission that we had for so long that we assumed we would always control the seas is in jeopardy, uh, and here's what we need to do to change this. Is, was that part of the intent of what you were trying to do with this paper? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so when you think about it, we um, right now, if we were to have to go out and fight a sea control kind of fight, we would end up relying on the aircraft carrier, the submarine, um, to a great degree, and maybe even the joint force, to do the sea control mission, because the, the surface fleet would be forced just to defend itself and, and to defend the carrier. And the only thing we have that's capable to reach out and actually attack the other guys' ships and weapon systems uh, are going to be airplanes. And so the airplanes are out there doing that, and um, the submarines are doing their part as well, especially with regard to anti-surface warfare. Well, that's great, except in a lot of the scenarios we are likely to find ourselves in in the near future, or in the you know, distant future even, uh, the ones we tend to plan for, you know, things like North Korea and Iran and, and China, they're all very maritime-centric when it comes to the power projection. So the, the submarines and the surface, rather the submarines and the aircraft carriers and the amphibs and the joint force is going to be focused to a great degree in term, on power projection and actually doing operations against the enemy ashore or, or in the air or uh, in outlying islands. Uh, and they're not going to be able to be freed up to go do sea control. That's going to fall to the surface fleet. And I think that until we kind of embrace this idea that the surface fleet's got to be able to control the seas on its own, uh, we're going to continue to to think that everything's okay because we're always thinking of things in the context of the joint force. And that's not going to be how it happens in the future. The, sea, the surface fleet has to be able to do this on its own. One, because the, surface, the rest of the force is going to be otherwise engaged. But two, because there's going to be plenty of situations where it's just surface combatants and it's going to be them alone doing escort missions or in a small dust-up somewhere. And they're going to be have to, have to be able to hold the enemy at risk instead of simply just defending against the things that the enemy launches at him. And that, so that was a big part of it. Uh, and then the um, other idea is that uh, we're um, losing an enormous opportunity here with the, the set of uh, decisions that the Navy has over the next couple of years, because we really could turn this thing around uh, very quickly if the Navy makes the right decisions with regard to these programmatics that are, are coming down the pike in the next couple of years between the weapon systems, the platform modifications, and, and the um, uh, the new uh, ships that are going to be developed uh, out of the existing classes of ships, or for example, the follow-on small surface combatant and the Flight 3 DDG-51. You know, there's a lot of opportunities there to you know, relatively quickly turn around the, the fleet's focus from being primarily defensive to be much more offensive. And I also want to bring into the discussion something that really is beyond, more or less, the Navy's control. And two larger issues. In your paper, you, you focus uh, the 2020s, 2030s, and beyond. And I want to talk for a little bit about the 2020s and two things, one of which is mostly beyond the Navy's control, the other one is not. There is a background, larger macro economic and budgetary stresses that are going to be exacerbated in the 2020s as the thicker cohort of the baby boomers go forward and retire and some other issues involving the federal budget that are even larger. Combine that with that's also the time internal to our military budgets. We need to make a decision on how and to what extent we recapitalize our SSBN force. 
and you know the, the twenties have a an opportunity to be a, a terrible twenties just from the ability to have the financial uh, capability to purchase what I think your paper rightly outlines are some rather significant, if not gaps, soft spots in our ability to do that um, offshore control, that forward deployment, uh, and to be able to project power ashore. What are some of those concerns that you have and what are some of the areas that we might be able to mitigate in order to at least bridge through the 2020s and those two stressors so we don't further rely on 1970s and 1980s forward technology? Yeah, so I so uh, we're going to have to – so one thing I tried to do with the report was really identify ways for the surface fleet to set itself up so that when the mid-2020s come and the Ohio replacement program begins consuming a large fraction of the shipbuilding budget, the surface fleet is positioned to be able to go on offense again and be able to uh, deal with sea control threats and rega- regain control of the sea uh, given the fact that the threats are going to be improving over the next 10 years. Uh, so that was the main focus of why that 2025 time frame was important, other than the fact that it was a time frame that you could really affect with decisions that are going to be made in the next two years. The um, How do we go after 2025? It's going to be incumbent on us to think about uh, a new hull form that we can incorporate much more modular technology into. And I know this is the direction that Admiral Roden um, and that uh, Admiral Copen before him and uh, Admiral Hilardes uh, uh, are all kind of focused on is this idea that the next large surface combatant has to be one that supports a very modular approach to shipbuilding, kind of like we do with the Virginia class, where you can you know, really build parts of it almost completely independently and bring them together at the end. And then also in the the ability to modularly change out the uh, combat system and weapon systems over time without it costing you know a two hundred and twenty million dollars and you have to tear the ship apart and it's out of the service for almost a year because uh, that's the problem today is that uh, the reason we still have some seventies and eighties technology out there is because it's it's prohibitively expensive to go in and replace that technology because to do it on a cruiser, for example, I have to tear apart the whole ship. It takes it out of service for a year. It costs $220 million, and you know the Navy just can't afford it while they're proposing this phase modernization. It, what we need to do with this next class of ship is not get ourselves into that situation, and, and there's almost no way to, to get yourself into that modular frame without building a new uh, ship design. So that's why in that 2025 timeframe, we're going to have to be pursuing a new ship design that we're able to start constructing as soon as we can when ship, shipbuilding funds allow, which unfortunately may not happen until the 2030s. Right now, it's you know the 2031 or two timeframe, I think, that the first one would be uh, started. So it, it's uh, so we're going to have to do that. Now, what we're going to have to do to mitigate that in the near term is uh, take our existing ships, uh, so we're going to be building the Flight 3 DDGs here soon, and uh, think about how we maximize their ability to uh, technologically refresh and uh, add new capabilities. So the AMDR, I think, will be a tremendous help in that because it is a scalable digital new technology radar that I think will help a lot in terms of the ship's ability to improve itself over time. And then I also propose in the study that we start looking at incorporating things like lasers onto the Flight 3s 
because they've got the power capacity to be able to bring in that technology. Uh, and a three to 500 kilowatt, 300 to 500 kilowatt laser would be able to do missile defense um, based on all the studies that have been done, the testing that has been done at lower power ranges. And that would be a pretty effective tool for the ship to have. It would also do other missions as well. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff, I, I mean, we really have to think about how do we equip the ships in a way that helps them maintain their edge, uh, their range or capacity advantage as we get through that tough period that you're identifying. Mid-2020s to the early 2030s is going to be really hard to introduce a lot of, you're going to be able to introduce any new ships, so we're going to have to make the most of the ones we have. Oh, my goodness. Um Brian, we've uh, taken up an hour of your time, and oh. <laughs> the uh, the uh, chat room is full of people saying, bring you back, and uh, sure. I think that would be a great idea. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, ask you what you've got uh, going on. I know you've got a submarine report coming up, and uh, anything, any other presentations we should know about, and uh, again, thank you for coming on with us today. It's been a real fast show and a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, Sal, and thank you, Eagle One. Uh, so uh, right now, yeah, I'm working on an undersea warfare assessment, and I've got a paper that will be sort of the first shot across the bow, if you will, of that that will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then um, I've also got a um, uh got a couple of uh, articles coming out that relate to the surface warfare study that will be coming out. Uh, one of them will be an op-ed uh, in the national interest, and then I also have uh, an article that I'm doing for Surface Navy Association. And at Surface Navy, uh, Brian McGrath and I will be doing an event, I believe, either a panel or, or some kind of presentation talking about some of the ideas in the study and some of the additional ideas that he's got for how the Surface Navy could uh, take advantage of a new offensive capability. So that's kind of what we got in the near future. And then I've got some stuff next year to talk about undersea warfare at uh, Navy Submarine League and some other venues. Well, we got to have you on just to talk uh, ASW then. That, that's one of my favorite things. And again, uh, just to echo what Eagle One said, thanks a lot. It's been a very quick, very enjoyable hour. You've been a great guest. Really appreciate you taking time to come join us this Sunday. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is fantastic. And we didn't even get to mention potatoes yet. That's right. <laughs> we'll have to get that next time. <laughs> And thank you, everybody else who has joined us live or is getting us here on the archive. Hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving week this week. Next Sunday will be a best of, but then we'll be back live on Pearl Harbor Day with Donald Stoker to discuss his new book on Carl von Clausewitz. So until then, everybody, have a great Navy day. Cheers. Maloney wants to marry me and so Leave the strand and pick a billy Or you'll be to blame For love has fairly drove me silly Hoping you're the same It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary
Insurance-minded speeches from GEICO. Hardship. My grandmother would go through it every month to pay her insurance bill. First, she would handwrite a paper check, in cursive. Then, using her own tongue, she would wet a stamp for an envelope. Today, however, we need not weary our hands and tongues. Today, we can pay our GEICO bill with the GEICO app. Away with hardship, in with bill pay on the GEICO app. Thank you. Shocked by your wireless bill every month? All those ridiculous fees and tacked-on taxes? You end up paying hundreds more a year than the price you expected. Switch to T-Mobile One because taxes and fees are now included. Right now, for just 100 bucks a month with AutoPay, get two lines of unlimited data. That's two lines for $100, all in, all unlimited. Don't wait. Hurry to a T-Mobile store to switch and start saving hundreds today. Top 3% of data users greater than 30 gigabytes per month may notice reduced speeds. Sales tax included. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.